Thank you for being here in worship today. And if you're joining us in our overflow room, uh, or if you're joining us online, thank you for worshiping with us as well. So last year in 2021, USA Today ran an article about the dangers of the latest TikTok challenges. Now, if you're not familiar with TikTok, it is a social media platform, and there have been a number of challenges over the years that have gone through social media. They began as a way to raise money for charity, the most famous of those being the Ice Bucket Challenge, which raised a lot of money for Lou Gehrig's disease research. Um, There were others to raise money for charity, and then there were a few that were put out Um, just for entertainment purposes, but they were fairly innocent. And then, at some point, they slid over into some very dangerous, deadly challenges. You may remember a few of these. Um, I've listed just a few. One, the COVID challenge. This was in March of 2020. This was a TikTok challenge where people were dared, essentially, to lick public services to demonstrate their lack of fear of COVID. And of course, the goal was to put a photo or a video out that would get lots of likes and lots of shares and more subscribers and more followers because the video video was so daring or the um, photo showed someone who was so daring. Some people went as far to as far as licking toilet seats in public restrooms, <clears throat> which I don't care if there's a pandemic or not. Just you don't do that. Another challenge was the sunburn art challenge, and so in this particular challenge, one was dared to draw something on their arm or their leg or their stomach, go out in the sun, get sunburned, except in the area where the sunscreen had been drawn on one's body, and of course, the more creative the photo, um, the more red, the more sunburned the person was, the more likes that they would get, the more shares, the more followers. Uh, Another was the hot water challenge, similar to the ice bucket challenge, but this one was not for charity. It was to catch someone by surprise with a bucket of hot water poured on them. Again, video of their reaction. If it was very funny, it would be shared, it would be liked. That was the goal, except there were several people who were injured, went to the hospital from this, and one eight-year-old child, sadly, who died from the hot water challenge. This is one most of you will remember, the Tide Pod Challenge. This dates from several years ago where particularly teenagers were dared to take Tide dishwasher detergent pods and place them in their mouths to see what would happen. They would video themselves. They would put it out. People would like it, share it, whatever. Um, I'm not sure how many people were injured by this, how many people actually did it, but I do know that it actually caused Procter & Gamble, the parent company of Tide, to put out a letter stating they did not support the challenge and that Tide Pods were not to be used as food because that's not what they are. And yet people somehow, the bar of common sense was lowered to the point that they would do this. And then finally, the car surfing challenge. Now, if you're my age and you're familiar with the very first Teen Wolf movie starring Michael J. Fox, you know exactly what car surfing is. Very dangerous. And yet there would be young people who would get on top of cars or trucks and they would surf. And of course, the faster they would go, the more daring they were, the more the video was shared and the more the video was liked and the more followers they would get. 
Again, sadly, a number of people died from trying to perform this particular challenge, all to get people to like them on social media. So the article talked about all these different challenges, and then it had this sentence, this line, this paragraph that just jumped off the page at me. And here is how it read. It said, a generation ago, kids would leave school or the mall or the movie theater and essentially leave their peers behind for the day. Home was a break from social pressure. Home was a safe place. Home was where their friends were not. However, now social media means that children's peers are everywhere all the time. Thus, peer pressure is around all the time. Now, this is not a message uh, directed directly at social media. Um, However, peer pressure in any form, whether it's through social media or directly, or what the Bible calls fear of man, can be deadly. It's not just these challenges that can do it, but for all of us, fear of man can destroy our lives. So this morning, we are continuing our series called Sins and Stones on the Life of King David. Uh, King David was the second king over Israel. He lived about 3,000 years ago, about 1,000 years before Christ. Uh, David was 15 when he was anointed as king, but he was 30 years old when he actually took the throne. His first act as king was to get the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, back into the land of Israel, and back into the tabernacle where they could worship God. Now, if you've been in church, you're familiar with the Ark of the Covenant. Um, It was a gold box, four feet wide, two and a half feet high, two and a half feet deep. Uh, It was wooden but covered in gold, had a gold lid, and that was where, in the mind of the average Israelite, God himself sat. They would say God is everywhere, but if you want to know where God resides, it is right there on this lid called the mercy seat of God on the Ark of the Covenant. It was the holiest relic of the Israelites. It was destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and destroyed the Ark. However, for 15 centuries prior to that, this was the holiest relic of the Israelites. It represented the very presence of God. So the question is, why was David having to get the ark back to to Israel and back to Jerusalem? You have to back up 20 years before when Israel was in a battle against the Philistines. And they went into this battle and they started to lose the battle. And so they gathered uh, with one another and they said, hey, we're losing against the Philistines. Here's what we need to do. We need to go and get the ark out of the tabernacle. And since the ark is the very presence of God, if we take the ark into battle, that means we are taking God into battle and we will beat the Philistines. They all thought it was a good plan. They got together. They got the ark. They took it in the battle. The only problem was God was not going to be used like a lucky rabbit's foot. He was not going to be used like a good luck charm. And so they go into battle and they lose the battle against the Philistines and the Philistines capture the ark. The Philistines take into one of their towns. They have all kinds of problems because the ark of the covenant is there. So they send the ark on a cart carried by animals back into Israel. It goes to a town called Bela, uh, to the house of a man named Abinadab, and it stays there for 20 years. 
David then ascends to the throne and he says it's time to get the ark. And so he gets an, an entire entourage of soldiers, elite soldiers, others. They go to this town that's about 10 miles away to Abinadab's house to get the ark to bring it back to Jerusalem. The only problem was they took the ark and they put it on a cart like the Philistines had done. And God was very clear that the ark was never to be touched. Because it represented God and the holiness of God, it was never ever to be touched. There were rings on the four corners of the ark. Poles were to be put through the rings. And priests would carry the ark on these, with these poles. It was not to be touched. But the Israelites put it on a cart with oxen carrying the cart. They started to transport it back to Jerusalem. They hit a bump. The ark began to wobble. And a man named Uzzah reached out and he touched the ark to keep it from falling off the cart. And the moment his flesh hit the gold-plated ark, he died. When that happened, David stopped everything. They somehow managed to get the ark to the house of a man named Obed-Edom. And David went back to Jerusalem. The crowd goes back to Jerusalem. And David basically pushes Paul's. And says, what do we do? How can I get the ark to Jerusalem? And for three months, he does nothing. And this is where our story picks up. This is 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, 2 Samuel's in your Old Testament. Right after 1 Samuel, just before 1 Kings. First, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we'll begin with verse 12. Here's what we read. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, that is Jerusalem, with rejoicing. So David, again, is in Jerusalem. The last attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem did not go well. David stops everything. He goes back to Jerusalem and he's just waiting. Three months go by and he gets word. Hey, remember when we, where we left the ark of God? At the house of Obed-Edom? Guess what? God has blessed his house and everything he has because the ark is residing in his home. The author doesn't tell us what those blessings were. But they were significant enough that David says, okay, we've got to try this again. I know a man died. I know the last time it didn't go well, but we've got to do this. The ark needs to be here where God can bless the city of Jerusalem, his city, and the people of Israel. The ark needs to be in the tabernacle. And so he goes to Obed-Edom to, to retrieve the ark and bring it back. Verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Okay, notice what it says here. When those who were carrying the ark, this time they did it the right way. The last time they took the ark and they threw it on a cart like it was a piece of luggage, taking it from this town back to Jerusalem, this time they figured out, wait a second, we're not acting the way that God has told us to act. We're not carrying the ark the way that God has prescribed for the ark to be carried. So let's, this time, let's get it right. They take poles, they put the poles through the rings, and priests are carrying the ark the way it was supposed to be carried, where no one is touching the ark. 
back to Jerusalem. They take six, six steps, six steps, and they stop. Six steps, and they stop, and David looks around, the others look around, and they say, everybody alive? Is everybody breathing? I mean, last time we tried this, it didn't go well, and a man died. Is everybody okay? And they look around, and no one has died. And David says, it's time to stop right now and thank God for what has happened. And they sacrifice a bull, and they sacrifice a fattened calf, and they have a worship service after six steps. This thank you, God, worship service that we have made it this far. Finally, they understand the holiness of God. The reverence is here. This cavalier attitude they had earlier is gone, and this time they get it. Yes, God is to be approached, and God is to be worshipped, but it is to be done so with a reverence because of the holiness of God. And so David stops and says, let's just worship. Let's just, let's just take, we've only taken six steps. We've got ten miles to go. But let's just stop right here and have this big old worship service. That's exactly what they do. So verse 13, they take six steps. They have a worship service. Then verse 14. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. So they stop, they have this worship service, then they proceed. The priests are carrying the ark, and as they're going along, David is wearing a linen ephod. This was what a priest would wear. It's not that David was pretending to be a priest. It's that David had shed his royal garments, basically to say, I'm just another worshiper here. I'm not the focus of attention for this parade, taking the ark back to Jerusalem. I am not the one that everyone needs to be looking at. God is the one that everyone needs to focus on. So he wears just the normal garments of a priest. This, this was David humbling himself before the Lord. The royal flowing robes, all the adornments that a king would normally wear, he strips all of that off. And he simply wears this linen ephod, and he is dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And before, things didn't go well. They took six steps. They were successful. Now they're continuing. And David is worshiping with all of his might. And all of Israel, all of those who were there for that event that day, all who had gathered, they are celebrating. It is this moving worship service. As they transport the ark back to Jerusalem, everything is going great. Then things take a turn. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, that is Jerusalem, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. Okay, I know Michael, daughter, that doesn't sound right to us today. So just, just imagine it's Michelle instead of Michael. Um, that was a name that was common for girls back then. Michael was the daughter of Saul. Saul was the first king over Israel. David's the second king. David was not Saul's son. So Saul had a daughter named Michael. Michael also happened to be the wife of David. So Michael's not there. She's not participating in the worship service. 
She did not go to this town. She was not there when they took six steps and they stopped and they had a worship service. She's not there for it all. She is watching through the window of the palace. She's in the castle. She's watching them approach Jerusalem and she sees David wearing a linen ephod and dancing with all of his might. Here's what it says. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, She despised him in her heart. She judged him and despised him in her heart. Why does she do this? Why does David's wife, the daughter of Saul, stand there looking through the window? Everyone's just worshiping the Lord. David is worshiping the Lord. And she sees this happening and she sees her husband and she despises her husband. Why does she do that? Because Michael was not just the wife of David. She was the daughter of Saul. Meaning she grew up in the royal household. She grew up as a princess. She grew up understanding what proper etiquette and decorum was. She understood what it was like to be regal. She understood how the royal family was to act. She understood how the king was supposed to act. And wearing a linen ephod was not it. And dancing around and leaping for joy was not it. King David, in her mind, should have had on his royal robes that flowed. He should have had attendants who were walking in front of him and behind him. And he should have walked tall and proud and very dignified And not just as another person worshiping the Lord. And so she despised him in her heart. I'll be honest with you. When I read this verse, I'm going to date myself here. But the first thought that came to my mind was the first verse of this old country song by Garth Brooks. Where Garth Brooks wrote, Blame it all on my roots. I showed up in boots. And ruin your black tie affair. From Michael's perspective, this was David acting like a country boy, showing up to the very formal affair in boots and the shirt that he pulled out of the dirty laundry and sprayed with Febreze because it's good enough, doing it that way. And she watches him and sees this and she thinks that's not how a king is supposed to act. And she despised him in her heart. The text continues, verse 17. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent. That's the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. So they took six steps. They stopped. They sacrificed a bull. They sacrificed a calf. They had this amazing worship service. They did the burnt offerings, the fellowship offerings. Then they go for 10 miles with this incredible parade that is just one long worship service. And they arrive in Jerusalem. They put the ark in its rightful place and they stop again. And they have this amazing worship service with the sacrifices and the offerings, everything that they would normally do in a worship service on steroids, they do there. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, 
He, David, blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. So here David finally gets up and he addresses the crowd and he blesses them in the name of the Lord. And he does so more than just with his words. Notice the next verse. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. So David at this point stops and physically blesses the people with food. And remember, this was a day and age and time where people would wake up in the morning and sometimes they didn't know if they were eating that day. I mean, to to have one's belly filled was a real blessing. And not all kings did that for their people. Not all monarchs would make sure that their people were fed. And here David says, I'm going to bless you with my words because of this great event that has just happened. And I'm going to make sure that everybody leaves here physically blessed because of what the Lord has allowed us to do this day. Now just imagine David. He's, he's had the most incredible day. Three months prior, everything had gone south. Man had died. He had not been able to get the ark back to Jerusalem. Three months later, they go. They do it the right way. They carry it. It works. They have one worship service. They have another worship service. He's dancing before the Lord. He's celebrating before the Lord. He's worshiping God with all of his mind. They have this great worship service there in Jerusalem. The ark is finally home where it belongs. He blesses the people. He gives them food. Everybody is on cloud nine. And he can't wait to get home and tell his family about all that the Lord has done. Right? Very excited here. Here's what happens next. When David returned home to bless his household, hey guys, guess what? And let me bless you. Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Just get the picture. David's heart is so full of joy, so excited. He's running to the castle to tell his family about everything that's happened, and he opens the door. There stands Michael, arms crossed, foot tapping, And she's got the look on her face. Now the author here doesn't describe that look, but every married man in here knows exactly what that look is. And in fact, the author doesn't say this, but I know what the first question of David was. Because all of us guys who are married, we've asked this question. You walk in, you see the look, the first question is, is it me or the kids? Because honestly, ladies... We can't tell the difference. It's the same look, and you could relieve a lot of pressure if you would just immediately say, it's not you, it's the kids. Thank goodness, (laughs) because I never know. The look is the same. Now, for David, unfortunately, he and Michael did not have kids, so he really didn't ask that question. He walked in, her arms are crossed, her foot's tapping. She's got the look, and he knows it's him. And just with this seething sarcasm, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today by dancing and 
leaping around half naked like any vulgar commoner would. Now understand, her framing of the events of what had happened earlier was not accurate. David was not half naked. He was not inappropriate or indecent. He simply wasn't wearing his royal robes. He was dressed as, as one of the commoners. And, and she could not stand this. And, and his dancing was not vulgar. This was not, this was not dirty dancing that he was doing. This was simply him worshiping the Lord. And yet in her mind, because he was not acting kingly, she was offended. And she was offended because the public perception of him reflected on her. And she believed that others looked at him as not acting very kingly and thus looked at her with their noses down on her because she was the wife of the king. Here's David's response. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. Let me translate this for you. This was not David walking into an argument and thinking, Okay, I'm going to lower the temperature on the argument. This was David responding in a way that just ratcheted up the argument. He did not pull a punch here at all. She says, I can't believe that you didn't act kingly. Why do you think I didn't act kingly? I can tell you why you think I did not act kingly. It's because you observed your father and how he acted, and I didn't act like your father. Guess what? That's the same man that God rejected and chose me instead. So you're comparing me to your dad? God has rejected your dad and his entire family line. So you want to accuse me of acting inappropriately? God has already spoken on this issue. So I will celebrate before the Lord. And then he continues and says, I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. In other words, what he is saying here is, I will never let my pride Get in the way of my worship and my service to the Lord. I will not allow the opinions of others to dictate how I'm going to act before God. I will serve Him fully. I will worship Him fully. And I will become even more undignified. I will act even more, as you say, undignified. I will become even more humiliated. If that is what I need to do to serve God. And then he says this. But by these slave girls you spoke of. You remember she said the slave girls that were there. They looked at you and and they despised you because of the way that you were acting. He's like oh no. No that may have been your perspective from the window. But you weren't there. By these slave girls you spoke of I will be held in honor. Why? Because they were there. They were part of the worship service. They understood the joy and the celebration that it was all about. And you may have one opinion, but those slave girls have a completely different opinion. Because they were in God's presence. And they understood it. And then the passage ends with this. It says, And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of her death. Now what's implied here is is because of her judgmental attitude of David that she had no children. However, there's something else that's going on. This was really God protecting the dynasty of David. Uh, Had Michael had a child, 
especially if that child was a boy. Then there would have been confusion over whose dynasty it was. Was it Saul's dynasty, the first king? Or was it David's dynasty? If there was a grandchild of Saul's who was also David's son, there would have been some confusion, and God makes it clear. Michael, the wife of David, has no children because it is the line of David that then leads Israel, and it is the line of David from which Jesus, the ultimate king, came. So what does this mean for us? The fear of man can absolutely destroy our lives. And what you see in this passage are two people who have a contrast with one another on fear of man and fear of the Lord. In fact, here's what you see. That David has a high fear of God in this story, but a low fear of man. So David says, hey, it's God's opinion that matters, not yours or anyone else's. It, it is my worship of God that is primary, not what others are thinking of me. It is how I serve God that will dictate my actions. It is not what others tell me that I need to do. By contrast, Michael had a high fear of man and a low fear of God. Now, for Michael, it was, well, what will others think? I can't believe you didn't act like a king. You're not acting in a way that others will respect you. And so for Michael, it was high fear of man, low fear of God. In the Bible, these are always held in contrast. You cannot have a high fear of man and a high fear of God. If you have a high fear of God, it will naturally give you a low fear of man. And a high fear of man will naturally lower your fear of God. So here's the question this passage begs us to ask. Am I living my life for an audience of one, or is my life dictated by the opinions of others? Do I have a high fear of God, this audience of one, or do I have a high fear of man? Now, if you choose to have a high fear of God, here are the benefits that you get from that. This is on your message map. Very quickly, we'll go through these. A fear of the Lord gives me three things. The first thing is, it gives me freedom. The, the most free you will ever be is when you have this high fear of the Lord. Look at what Proverbs 29 says. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. The fear of man will prove to be a snare or a trap. It, it will enslave you. If you're always worried about others, what others will think, it will just steal every ounce of freedom that you have. If you are constantly on your phone checking for likes and shares and good comments, you're, you're trapped by that. You're not free to live in the joy that the Lord has designed for you. You're trapped by this. And even if you say, well, I don't do social media... And, but you have this high fear of man, then you spend hours and hours trying to please others. By the way, you're trying to please others whose opinions will change and who all have different opinions. It's impossible. You can never do it. So the fear of the Lord proves to be this freedom while the fear of man is a trap. Here's the second thing. The fear of the Lord gives me peace. Notice what Psalm 27 says. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Here's what the author is saying. 
when your focus is on the Lord and you have a high fear of the Lord, then it lowers the fear of everything else. What else do you have to be afraid of if, if God is on your side? If you have the protection of the Lord, what else is there to be afraid of? There's a Scottish pastor and theologian named Oswald Chambers. Many of you know that name. Um, he is most famous for a, a short devotional that he wrote called My Utmost for His Highest. Um, he said this about the fear of the Lord. He says, a remarkable, remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. That's exactly what that psalmist is saying. When you have a high fear of God, the fear of everything else is gone and you have peace in your life. So it gives us, uh, it gives us freedom, it gives us peace. And third thing is the fear of the Lord gives us purpose. This is what Paul wrote to the Philippian church. And let me just give you a little context here. Paul was a prisoner in Rome. Uh, Paul was uh, under the guard of, of the Roman Empire. And he writes this letter to the Philippian church. And here's what he said. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. And then verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. His high fear of the Lord gave Paul this incredible purpose in life. Well, Paul, you're in prison. That's not good. No, it's not that bad. Actually, I'm getting to share Christ with the jailers here. Yeah, but you're not really out and doing your mission trips. Yeah, but let me tell you, something's amazing going on. I'm sharing Christ with the jailers, and some of these happen to be the same people who are like the secret service for the royal family, Caesar's household, and some of them have actually gone and shared Christ with Caesar's household, and you're not going to believe it, but they've told me that some in Caesar's household have come to accept Christ. Well, well, Paul, but still, wouldn't you rather be out of jail? Well, yeah, I guess I would, but see... For to me, to live is Christ. And so if, if my mission for the Lord is successful by me being in jail, then I'm okay with that. What do you do with a guy like that? If you're trying to shut him down, what do you do with a guy like that? Put me in jail? Well, hey, that's not a bad deal because I get to share Christ. And these people are sharing Christ with others. And so, you know, that's not that bad. Okay, well, Paul, here's what we're going to do because you will not close your mouth. And even with the jailers, you're sharing Christ. We're going to kill you. Well, for to me, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain because that means I get to be with Jesus. What do you do with a guy like that? Paul's high fear of the Lord gave him incredible purpose. This is my purpose. For to me, to live is Christ. Not for to me, to live is to get more followers on Instagram. For to me, to live is to get more wealth so I can impress others. For to me is to make sure that I'm acting in a way that others will be impressed by those actions. Paul says, I have, I have got this laser-like focus in life. Now listen, this doesn't mean that you intentionally make others mad. Don't try to wear this as a badge of honor. And go around and say, well, I don't care what you think, and I don't care what you think. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's not what Paul was saying. Paul was saying that primarily the question that he asked in his life is, does this please the Lord? And if the answer to that is yes, then that is what I will do. And some people will be pleased by that as well. 
and others will not. But for Paul, he said, that's not really my concern. I'm going to live for the Lord, and then I'll just simply let the chips fall where they may. Years ago, uh, when our two oldest were younger, uh, Katie and I took them to Washington, D.C. one summer for just a few days to do all the touristy things. I remember it was brutally hot, and we, you know, walking around Washington, D.C. in the heat of the summer, looking at all these different, um, different touristy things that were there. And one morning, we got up early, and we walked to the Smithsonian uh, Air and Space Museum. That was on our agenda for the day, and so we're headed there to get there before it opened. I can't remember what, what time it was, maybe 9 in the morning. We were walking through this park and going down this path through the park, and there was a bench, park bench, right there in this park, right next to the path. And as we were approaching the park bench, I noticed this young girl who was seated on the bench by herself. As we got closer, I could see that she had her phone out. And she had her arms stretched out, and she had her phone out. And as we approached her, I could see that she was taking pictures of herself. Looked like several. I mean, I couldn't see, but I'm pretty sure she was just snapping picture after picture. And you could see she was kind of doing her hair and adjusting and, and taking picture after picture. Completely consumed by it. Did not even notice our family walking by. Didn't even comment on our cute kids, you know, as, <laughs> as they walked past. She was just completely consumed taking pictures. Now, I don't know this for certain, but I would bet my next several paychecks that this is what was happening. She sat there on that bench. She took picture after picture, 30, 40, who knows, 50 pictures. She then went through every picture until she found the perfect picture. She picked that particular picture. She applied filters to it to make herself look as wonderful as she could. And then she took that picture and she posted it on Instagram or some other social media website with a comment, really enjoying my internship this summer with Congressman so-and-so, hashtag Washington, D.C., hashtag summer 2000, whatever it was. You know, loving life here in D.C. Then she went to her internship at Congressman so-and-so's office, and she sat in her little cubicle, and she checked Instagram every 45 seconds all morning long to see if there were likes and if there were shares and if there were comments. If there were lots of likes, and if there were lots of shares, and if there were good comments like, I'm so jealous, and you look so beautiful, and I know you're having a wonderful summer, and boy, you look fantastic. If that's what happened, then our heart just leapt for joy. However, if it was ignored, there were very few likes, very few shares, and if somebody made a comment like, wow, you look like you've put on 10 pounds, then she was crushed because she was trapped by the opinions of others. Here's what the fear of the Lord does. It gives us freedom, it gives us peace, and it gives us purpose. So here's what I want you to do this week. Every morning when you get up, when you're having your coffee, sitting there reading your Bible, take five minutes. I want you to have your quiet time. I want you to ask yourself today, Am I going to live for an audience of one or am I going to be trapped by the opinions of others? Whether it's in social media, whether it's in your office or wherever you're going, am I going to make choices that I know primarily please God or am I going to live 
for the opinions of others. And I promise you, I promise you, if you will focus your life like Paul did, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, you will experience freedom and peace and purpose in your life. 